Good afternoon, uh, good morning, good evening, and welcome to this special UN Food Systems Summit event. And this event is on funding food system transformation in developing countries with an example from Ethiopia. The session has been co-organized by the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, the Alliance of Bioversity International and SEAT, the CGIAR, and we've done this in collaboration with two members of the technical committee in the government of Ethiopia that has been supporting um, the process there in responding to the UN Food Systems Summit. Now, as we are all aware, yesterday was the big day for the UN Food Systems Summit. And really countries have responded in a quite an unprecedented way, having done dialogues, having made all sorts of plans. And indeed, many countries have developed food systems transformation pathways. And low and middle income countries have indeed taken this as an opportunity to perhaps chart a different path on food systems transformation to what we have so far seen in the high income countries. And so today we have uh, with us some distinguished speakers and we are going to look at one example from a low middle income country, Ethiopia, on how they have responded and the type of plans they have made. But then we also know that to get these plans to work towards 2030, we actually are going to require adequate financing. And so this session will look at what types of capital flows there might be out there, um, how countries might perhaps leverage these. And indeed, we will look at some practical examples where these have been tried uh, with some success. And so one of the first things I'd like to say to you is, please remember that we really would like you to participate through the Q&A um, session. And so as the presenters make their presentations, do put your uh, questions and comments in the Q&A. And as we progress, uh, when we get to Q&A, I will field some of these questions uh, to the speakers. If you can look, if you are live streaming, um, you will see to your right uh, of the screen, ifpre.org, and in there you can field the questions uh, for Q&A, and, and these uh, will be used. And so without wasting much time, our first speaker is going to be Dr. Cisse Sinamo Boltena, who is a senior program manager of the Sakota Declaration Federal uh, program delivery unit in Ethiopia. Dr. Sise has been an integral part of the technical committee that has supported the process in Ethiopia, but he is also having the unenviable task through the Sakota Declaration to demonstrate and bring about uh, a reduction in stunting in Ethiopia through multi-sectoral interventions, including agriculture. Dr. Sise will 
present to us an example of how Ethiopia has responded and how this quarter declaration could be an example for us to look at financing uh, mechanisms through. Over to you, Dr. Sise. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Namukolo. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I will be presenting the Ethiopian Food System Transformation Pathway, where Sakota Declaration is one of the game-changing solutions. Next slide, please. Similar to other countries, we followed uh, a similar process for the Global Food System Summit, but in Ethiopian case, we strongly contextualized to the country's food system challenges. Uh, informed by the background paper, uh, we organized three uh, consecutive dialogues. The first one on the high-level policy roundtable, uh, which uh, was followed by uh, the identification of the challenges of the food system and also describing the current food status of uh, the Ethiopian food system. And a follow-up uh, dialogue has enabled us to identify potential game-changer solutions and also mapping to actions areas to inform the transformation, food system transformation, as well as the development of the position paper and uh, drafting the roadmap. In July 15th, uh, we have been able to launch the Ethiopian food system uh, in country, where the government clearly shared the vision for the transformation of the Ethiopian food system, which has been also communicated during the pre-summit uh, in Rome. Uh, currently, we have uh, the draft 10 years roadmap, and we are also exploring ways to link this to the Nutrition for Growth Summit, as well as also other uh, funding opportunities. In Ethiopian context, Ministry of Agriculture and Ministry of Health were the conveners for the Food System Summit, where the CEO for the Agricultural Transformation Agency and Excellency, the State Minister of Health, has been the creators. As it was described earlier, a multi-sectoral technical committee supported the entire food system process in Ethiopia. Next slide. Uh, our roadmap uh, has uh, 22 game changer solutions that are grouped into six clusters. And each of these clusters has a number of uh, game changers solutions, which we are currently uh, costing for each of the interventions under the game changer solutions. There are various game changer solutions in each cluster. And for instance, cluster one has four game changer solutions and also cluster two has six game-changing solutions. The Sakota declaration that I will be giving you, uh, I'll be presenting a further uh, deep dive as an example is embedded in cluster two, but also some of its elements are also included in cluster one and as well as cluster four. I will do a brief deep dive into the Sakota declaration as a game-changer solution that have been tested and also for which we believe that more and significant investment is needed. Next slide. The Sakota Declaration goal is aligned well to our food system transformation vision. And this declaration is the Ethiopian government commitment that builds on and accelerates the implementation of the food and nutrition strategy, which Ethiopia 
recently has launched. The goal of the Sakota Declaration is to end stunting among children under two years by 2013, and it aims to save a total of over 7.8 million children in by 2015 across the country. As you can see, as you can see in the map, there are a wide range of uh, children with current estimate nearly six million. They are distributed across uh, the country. The Sakota Declaration uh, roadmap, as you can see uh, here, is divided into three phases. The first phase is the innovation phase, where we have implemented uh, in 40 waradas focusing on nutrition-specific, nutrition-sensitive and infrastructure interventions. And we are now moving into the expansion phase to cover uh, 40 waradas, uh, 240 waradas where after based on the learning from the 40 waradas during the innovation phase. A strong multi-sectoral approach were taken in which all the listed sectors, uh, sectoral ministries and also development partners aligned their efforts to deliver on a common goal of the Sakota Declaration achieving the ending stunting goal. The six tested innovations I can mention briefly are the program delivery unit where it was tested to improve program management and governance related to multi-sectoral coordination, a community lab to promote participation, ownership, and local solutions for stunting, a data revolution for improving monitoring, evaluation, and decision-making, agriculture and water technologies for improving access and use of water for human agriculture and livestock use, and the costed water-based planning to support funding allocation, resourcing, as well as also implementation. And finally, the first 1,000 days public movement for promoting social behavior change through the range of interventions. A high level, a high level leadership led by His Excellency, the Deputy Prime Minister at federal level and Excellencies, the regional presidents at regional level were leading the declaration through a multi-sectoral platform and the technical committee supports the implementation of it at regional, uh, zonal and also uh, Warada level. We have now the proof of concept that agriculture can impact not only just agriculture, but also nutritional outcomes in terms of stunting, uh, well, all efforts across the various sectors are well aligned. Next slide, please. So here is a proof of concept for our game changer solution, the Sakota Declaration. Uh, for years, as we know, uh, it has been very difficult to show impact on stunting. But now we have been able to generate the impact through multi-sectoral interventions implemented uh, in an integrated manner. We did a study with John Hopkins University to assess the impact of the Sakota Declaration innovation phase in the past four years. And by the year 2021, uh, this year, the impact of the innovation phase in the 40 waradas where was uh, a 7.9% absolute reduction on stunting in Amhara, a 6.7% reduction in Tigray, and also we have been able to prevent over 1,000 child deaths in both regions, and we have been able to avert over 109,000 stunted cases through the multi-sectoral uh, interventions. Of course, agriculture had been the greatest impact on stunting, where improved complementary feeding, the primary driver of stunting reduction, accounted for over 90% of stunted cases averted. 
through promotion of diversified and nutrient-dense foods at the household level. And over 75% of households in the target population reached with at least one agricultural intervention and improved agricultural production has translated to reduce household food insecurity and better nutrition for pregnant women and children under five. We have therefore demonstrated a proof of concept to the Sakota Declaration approach, and it is a game-changing solution which is worth uh, investing in. Next slide, please. So we now have we now have a proof of concept, and as it as indicated in the declaration, uh, it is one of the 22 game changer solutions that have been prioritized in the Ethiopian uh, food system transformation roadmap. And in the expansion phase, which we have just started, uh, the expansion will cover 240 waradas over. Uh, uh, 27 million people, nearly 1 million pregnant lactating mothers, and over 2 million children under 2. And overall, the funding requirement is uh, over 1.85 billion USD, which is needed uh, during the expansion phase. As you can see on the right, the investment is gradually increasing because we are going to also reach additional uh, 500 waradas to make 700 waradas by the end of the expansion phase. As a startup funding, the government of Ethiopia has allocated uh, 10.9 million USD from the treasury account for this uh, year, where the regional governments are also expected to contribute an equivalent amount. So at this stage, we, we call upon all stakeholders to contribute for the success of the proofed uh, expansion phase and also uh, the scale-up of tested innovation in the Sakota Declaration. We are also therefore looking forward to hearing the ideas that will be presented here on the different types of financing mechanisms that we could explore. Next slide. Uh, finally, I would like to thank the mothers who have been really uh, uh, you know, really had worked hard to make uh, this innovation phase a success and also all the stakeholders and development partners that have contributed for the success of uh, the innovation phase. I look forward to a successful deliberation and also an opportunity to discuss more on financial mechanisms that we could explore. Thank you so much. Over to you, Dr. Namukolo. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sisse. And, and before we go to our next speaker, let me just remind our audience that you can add your questions to the Q&A and you can find this to the right of the screen where the, the video you are watching now is being screened. Um, we have heard about the efforts that a country has made and we know that multiple countries have tried to do uh, similar things. So plans have been made and budgets are being put together. And the big question, of course, is where is the investment going to come from? And so our next speaker is going to be um, Dr. Eugenia Diaz-Bonilla. 
He's the head of Latin American and Caribbean program at the CGIR IFPRI. And he is really somebody who has extensive experience as advisor and consultant to governments in different developing countries on macroeconomic and trade policies, poverty alleviation, and food security programs and extensive involvement in project preparations, financing, and implementation. And who more to have than him to come and talk to us about flow of funds and where these funds could actually flow from. Uh, Dr. Eugenio uh, Diaz-Bonilla, over to you. So the, as we, we heard the presentation, the starting point is a program, national program. No? What, uh, ideally, you have a discussion of the short term, getting out of the pandemic, medium term, what is the transformation of food systems, what are the objectives of that transformation, who needs to do what, uh, how, and the cost. Then the question is, okay, how we finance this, uh, this program? And we suggest to look in, um, in general, it depends on every country, it's gonna be different, but to look at six flow of funds. Uh, two are internal to the food systems and four are, we call it external. So the, the first um, flow of funds, if you want to go through the food system, is consumers that are spending on food, and that's the counterpart of the sales and incomes of the food um, operators in the, in, the, in, the food, in, the, in the food system. Uh, and there are a lot of different policy interventions that can help uh, allocate and distribute and, and guide those flows for the needed transformation of food systems. In the case of consumers, information about nutrition uh, qualities, education related to that, um, uh, uh, labeling so they know exactly what they are eating, taxes and subsidies that change relative prices and incomes. And the same on the producer side, it, there are regulations related to. Uh, to health, nutrition, you know, you cannot produce with trans fat. This is the level of sugar or salt or different other uh, um, elements. Uh, and also all the way different regulations on environment, on labor practices and advertisement and so on. And also, of course, taxes and subsidies. That will shift help. These policies will help shift the, the flows within the, the, the food system. Now we go to the external flows. How can we finance um, the, the, from the external side the, the operation of the food system? One uh, obvious uh, fund, uh, flow is the International Development Fund, multilateral, bilateral philanthropy. Um, again, the question, if you are uh, organizing or putting together a program, the first question, what is the availability and requirements uh, uh, that, that we need uh, and then uh, the most complicated, usually, part of the discussion is how you can coordinate programmatically all these different uh, donors and, and international agencies that, that are helping uh, the program. And the other big question that I'll touch later is uh, how to use this money that is, in some sense, limited to mobilize private sector money, how, how you can use that money more strategically. Then you go to public budgets, um, and usually the, the organization of the information is not such that you can see, okay, I'm, uh, this is the amount of money that I'm spending on food systems. It, it's scattered in different uh, ministries and different budgets. So one 
uh, way of approaching is to do an expenditure review in which you look at the amount composition and then it, ideally you you can check also the, the the efficiency efficacy and and equity of those investments in the case of uh, ethiopia it, it there is clear information on agricultural forestry and and fisheries is sorry uh, uh, but if you look at the amount of money that according to the fao study, database is spent on agriculture that's about only 26% of the importance of the agricultural sector in, in Ethiopia. In social assistance, it's about 1% of the GDP, which is close to 1.2%, which is the average, the median for all developing countries. Once you look at the amount of money, then you look at the structure of the programs. What are the instruments and the programs that, that how need to be perhaps redesigned in the case of cash transfers that may be expanded with more components? And of course, you need to look at the revenue side, uh, how are how, uh, the money being collected. This is mostly public money, but then you look, need to look also to the private money that may support these expanded flows. One is the banking system. Um, again, you need the starting to look at what are the macroeconomic flows in the banking system? How is the banking system being financed all the, on the asset and the liability side, the regulations, the instruments, uh, everything that may affect the way the bankings interact with the agents in the, in the food system. In the case of um, Ethiopia, again, the, the portfolio is about 800 million US dollars, according to the data from FAO, which again is only 26% compared to the, to the relevance that the agricultural sector has uh, in the economy. In particular, where uh, the point to look at is what are the, the, the role or the role that public banks can play with, in support of uh, vulnerable and um, uh, groups, uh, women, youth, uh, ethnic uh, minorities, and so on. Then we look at capital markets. Uh, there are, there's a variety of uh, investors and, and also instruments. Uh, what are the regulations that can be uh, used to um, guide these funds to support the transformation of food systems. That's one set, one set of um, topics. The other is uh, the possibility of developing green, social, and other thematic funds. I'm going to talk about the pandemic recovery bonds later. Then, the, the, and with this, I'm closing. The main point is um, uh, it was clearly in the presentation for Ethiopia. The next question is okay, I have the program, these are the source of funding. How I can put all these things uh, together? We have many ministries. Uh, you have uh, the involvement of um, uh, the private sector. You have a variety of international organizations. How how the governments can put this together? This one this is a crucial uh, question, and that requires an unified overall responsibility and an integrated programmatic approach uh, from the organizational and budgetary sides. It's not only the organization. You need someone in charge, but then and, and, and the division of activities across ministries and, and different actors. But then you have to have an integrated programmatic approach. And finish with that. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Eugenio. Uh, and 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 you know, you you said something that really resonated to me, and it's the idea of these monies are flowing from different sources. So before we move on to our next speaker. I want to ask a question to Dr. Sise, but Dr. Sise, I'll give you time to think about it, but 
so that by the time we get to Q&A, you might have an answer for us. I couldn't help notice that in the slide that you presented, that last one with all the different uh, partners that have supported the Sakota declaration process, the question that perhaps other countries might learn from Ethiopia is, how have you managed to coordinate the flow of funding from those multiple partners uh, that have been supporting uh, the Sakota Declaration? So something for you to think about uh, in the meantime, uh, while we go to uh, the next speaker. And our next speaker is going to be Dr. Richard uh, Newman. He is Senior Sustainable Finance Specialist at the International Water Management Institute. And he will actually, he's somebody who has been working with examples of scaling science and innovation to mobilize finance for food systems transformation. And snooping around on his LinkedIn page, I found that a lot of his work is actually leveraging capital flows uh, towards innovative investments, sustainable food, land and water systems by designing and structuring investment solutions that achieve sustainable impact. And so to you, I hope you are going to tell us about practical examples of funding that you have tested. Over to you, uh, Dr. Richard. Great. Thank you very much for that introduction, uh, Dr. Namakulo. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, <clears throat> yes, so as um, Dr. Namakulo mentioned, and building on from Dr. Eugenio Diaz and his presentation, so besides the flow of funding, how do we actually support those, those various actors within that flow? And that's going to be the, the goal of my presentation today. So just a little bit about ourselves. So our role is to work with public and private investors and corporates uh, to co-design innovative investment solutions and vehicles that also scales uh, the CGIR science and research. Um, our end goal, of course, is to leverage more capital flows uh, for food systems transformation. So we work with all the flows that um, Dr. Eugenio Diaz mentioned, uh, ranging from um, public investors, um, asset managers, asset owners, uh, and, and going towards corporates as well. So starting off with the challenges, right? So according to the Food and Land Use Coalition, um, we, we currently need per annum 300 to 250 billion um, to transform our food and land use systems. If we go a step further and, and go to the small, the farm and need, their need is currently estimated at 188 billion per annum. Unfortunately, if you look at public sources alone, it's not going to quite cut the cut that gap. So, as an example, uh, the ODA funding in 2018 for food, for agriculture, forestry, and fishing uh, was 10.2 billion. So, there's a significant. Uh, we need to look at other sources of funding if we're going to close that funding gap. So, what we've been increasingly doing is working with um, private sector more and more, um, and yeah, there are a number of additional challenges. Um, firstly, uh, there's a limited pipeline of bank pool projects. When we involve the private sector, they're looking for risk-adjusted returns. Um, secondly, on that topic, um, the agricultural sector in general is 
seen as very high risk relative to other sectors. And then secondly, on top of that, um, as we transition to sustainable food systems, that transformation involves new business models. And these new business models uh, come with um, early stage, uh, untested, unproven, and therefore risky. Um, so overall, a very high uh, risk uh, area. And thirdly, the bigger uh, next challenge is the lack of intermediation to connect those different sources of capital. Um, so we need to improve on matchmaking. So how have we um, supported the solutions? So uh, we look at three key areas of work. Uh, one, as I mentioned, design of innovative investment solutions. And I will talk through one case study uh, through this presentation. Uh, secondly, uh, looking at scaling scientific innovation and accelerating digital solutions. Here we're looking at um, risk assessment tools, um, M&E tools, um, due diligence support, uh, supporting the building the pipeline, et cetera. And then finally, it's about market intelligence. Um, here we're looking at how do we support investors understand what is, what is the food systems approach? And here we're looking at climate smart investment planning, et cetera. So let's get into some cases. Um, so as, as I mentioned, we're supporting actors across the financial intermediation chain. Um, I just wanna highlight three cases in particular. Um, I will focus on the third, uh, go a bit deeper into that one. Firstly, with um, MDBs, DFIs, IFIs. Um, a case in point is with the World Bank. So we've just started a, a project um, and this is actually in, East, in, in Africa, uh, six countries in Africa. And one of our roles within that is to de develop a climate smart investment plan for Ethiopia. Um, so this, this fits nicely with uh, the first presentation of uh, Dr. Sisse, where firstly, we need to identify the critical investment gaps, um, prioritize climate smart agricultural investment priorities. Secondly, we need to map that those um, sustainable finance instruments and sources of capital that uh, Dr. Eugenio was mentioning um, to develop some form of topology. And thirdly, we need to start with the road mapping of matching that sort of sources of funding. Um, and that, that project is now just, uh, just kicking off. Um, so we look to, we look to really support um, the Ethiopian government with, with their action plan. Secondly, if we move now to financial institutions and MFIs. Um, so yeah, we're looking at an example of uh, local and regional banks. Um, we are working with a um, credit facility in East Africa, um, and we are designing a climate smart agriculture credit scoring tool. So as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> um, domestic financial institutions need to better assess the risks especially when it comes to climate change. Likewise, um, smaller farmers need to adapt to climate change. So our solution there is to design a fully automated end-to-end -end credit scoring tool um, to better support the, the financial institution, assess the riskiness of investments, and then also identify what are the type of interventions that um, those uh, small, medium-sized enterprises um, can take on to really adapt to climate change. Um, in the third example, and now we're talking more on capital markets, um, and this is really where we're trying to mobilize a substantial capital, a lot more capital in, in, from the private sector. 
Um, in this case, we are working with an asset manager um, based, in, based in Europe to co-design a $200 million climate smart agriculture and food system fund. I will briefly go into that one in a bit more detail. So, as I mentioned earlier, there's various sources of um, various sources of capital we need to tap into, and the whole goal with this this vehicle is to make make use of both public and private investment. So um, we have the government some government funding supporting in terms of um, first loss capital to de-risk that vehicle. And with that, we hope to mobilize up to $200 million of private capital alongside that vehicle. Um, so as I mentioned, the, the key challenges that we're trying to address is how to channel investments to build a pipeline of low carbon and climate resilient uh, food systems. At the same time, we also need to uh, negate the impact of climate change on small agri SMEs and smallholders. Often the large in size of the investment vehicle, the, the less focus on the smallholder. So it's really important to also um, make sure we look after the safeguard of the, the smallholder farmer. So how, how are we actually doing this? So we've been involved now for up to eight months, I would say, um, to really to integrate our science and research to develop a food systems approach into the investment decision-making process of that, of that fund. Um, so as you know, um, uh, climate, change, uh, yeah, climate change impacts uh, the food systems, but it also is a significant contributor to climate change. In fact, uh, one third of human-made greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from the, the food system, and up to 70% of freshwater use um, um, extraction withdrawal uh, comes from the agricultural sector. So if we're actually going to address all these challenges, we need to um, address the main drivers of climate change. And by this, we mean looking at uh, solutions on food loss waste, um, moving to sustainable and healthy diets, uh, improved land use. Um, so this, this vehicle would be accompanied with a technical assistance facility, um, and we're going to be providing advisory services along various stages of the investment decision-making process from market building, so science-based prioritization um, to address, to identify those entry points to address the negative externalities. Uh, secondly, on the pre-investment stage, so you're know, looking at technical risk assessment, so climate change modeling, um, water usage, biodiversity, um, making sure that the investment really also integrates this into the decision-making process. And finally, it's about post-investment. So this is a more um, climate smart agriculture intervention, um, M&E, and then also promoting um, successful business models. Uh, an example and point of a pipeline uh, within the, the project would be um, the, the vehicle would mostly focus on aggregators. So these are um, invest, uh, big SME companies that really do um, work with a big number of smallholder farmers to source their, their inputs their, for their processing. So a case in point, um, a cashew mango processor in uh, West Africa, uh, the vehicle would invest into the plant and making sure that the energy, water efficiency, and the processing side of things. And then the technical systems facility makes sure, sure we go back into the supply chain 
So currently that, that SME is um, um, sourcing from 5,000 smaller farmers with intention to move to 10,000 smaller farmers. Uh, we need to then design climate smart interventions for those uh, 10,000 smaller farmers to make sure they can adapt to climate change. So that'll be our role in that fund. Um, the final and the impact outcomes, we're going to be measuring this um, in terms of climate change mitigation, so reduction in CO2 emissions. We're going to be looking at climate change adaptation, um, lower net freshwater consumption. And finally, we're going to be looking at improved productivity. And yeah, we've built in uh, food loss waste as a, a KPI for that. So in conclusion, uh, so science can bridge the gap between sustainability and profitability. How? Through improved risk assessment, through lower the transaction, lower the transaction cost, using digital tools, and prioritizing and safeguarding impacts. Uh, what we really need to do is build the pipeline of bankable solutions, because that's, gonna, that's what's needed in, in order to uh, mobilize more capital. And then finally, as a third point, um, please have a look at our latest uh, discussion paper entitled Scaling Up Critical Finance for Sustainable Food Through Blended Finance. It's available on the CCAS website uh, today. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, did I cut you short? Wasn't sure. No, 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 that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Dr. Newman. Wow. Um, essentially, what you've told us is that there are ways in which we can raise financing and de-risk these investments that have been deemed too risky for mainstream investors to come on board. So the paper that you are referring to, I'm definitely going to look it up. Um, but one of the things I want you to think about as we get towards uh, Q&A later on is I'm sure there are people in the audience who are saying, use me as your example to try out some of these things. So if there is a country out there that is thinking like that, how will they get in touch with you? Um, you will have to tell us as to that later. How do they go about setting themselves up for, yes, we want to do this. You can try it out within our context. Look at the plans that we have made. So that question, I will, uh, I will come back to. And if I forget, please just feel free to throw it in as we move forward. Now, before we get to our next speaker, let me again remind you that you can put your questions in the Q&A to the right of the screen where you are watching us. Um, and that I can see there are some questions that are coming through. So please do put in questions or comments, or if you have ideas that you would like to share with us of things perhaps that you have tried that have also worked, uh, please also add them in there. Now, we move on now to the issue of gender. Um, and, and, and before I introduce the speaker, yesterday as the, the UN Food Systems Summit heated up, there was a tweet uh, that caught my attention, and it was a tweet from uh, Carmen Torres Ledesma from UNEP. And her tweet says, the food system must do for women 
what women have been doing for the food system since the beginning of time. We cannot achieve food systems transformation without increasing women's rights, empowerment, access to services and products, and recognition. And, and I wanna use that as a way of moving on to our next speaker, uh, who is uh, Dr. Flo Paz, a research analyst at CGIR uh, IFPRI, um, who will address the issues of gender on financing uh, for food systems. And, 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 and really, she's somebody who has been focusing uh, much of her work uh, recently on the topic um, in terms of looking at issues of women's empowerment and previously was actually involved with uh, Dr. Eugenio who spoke earlier on leveraging financing uh, for food systems transformation and the role of women in food systems. So to you, um, Flo, tell us about how we might uh, address the issue of gender on financing to really realize the potential of women as part of food systems transformation. Over to you. Thank you, Namakolo. Um, as I spoken, um, I'm going to be speaking about financing for gender um, food system transformation, gender financing for food system transformation. Um, first of all, we need to understand what are we talking about gendered food systems? If we take into account the framework that Njuki et al. presented at the United Nations Food Systems Summit Science and Innovations for Food Systems Transformation Report earlier in the year, we can see that women are key actors through the food system, throughout the value change, but also on the consumer end. Women are producers, workers, processors, traders, and consumers. Women are at the root of food security at a household level, but also they make up considerable amounts of informal food system as street vendors and small producers who tend to be reliable in times of crisis when formal systems get disrupted. Women also face unique constraints and limitations that are shaped and reinforced by structural social inequalities built into the food system. Some of the main constraints are based on safety, access to childcare, lack of collaterals, to name a relevant few. Women are able to overcome some of these constraints through collective organizing with access to hyper-local institutions and group savings. However, the impacts of gender-based violence go beyond health and hinder women empowerment through different economic dimensions, such as employment and assets accumulations. This makes up to an equality cycle where stark gender inequalities are both cause and an outcome of unsustainable food systems and unjust food access, consumption, and production. For, for this implies that transforming food systems require changes in gender inequality at formal, informal, individual, and systemic dimensions. So if we want to increase women's agency and women's access to and control over resources, we need to enact systemic changes in gender social norms and policies and governance. 
Building up on what Eugenio presented earlier, if we look at the financial flow of funds uh, for food systems, we can take into the intervention considerations a gender approach and think about, for example, what are our desired outcomes? There's different conceptions and some are misconceptions on what we refer to women's empowerment. Are we talking about agency of women? Are we talking about the decision-making power or are we just focusing on, on economic outputs such as increasing women's inclusion in certain markets or industries? Are we talking about increasing women's productivity or just income? When we think about our population objective, are we talking about collective organizations or are we just focusing on women as individuals? When we are thinking about the instruments that these policies are gonna be strewn through, are these instruments taking into account the constraints that we just spoke about and thinking about alternative collaterals in order to dwell the financing? And finally, what are the spillovers or all the policies and programs that we're considering? How are these programs and policies gonna interact with pre-existing social norms? So now if we focus on what Eugenio was talking about as an internal, as an internal um, flow of funds. We can think of consumers are gonna need certain types of programs. And these programs are gonna be investment in targeted programs of education and nutrition, use of technology, intervention to promote equal gender norms in the household community and systemic changes. However, on the producer side, we also going to think about producers needing training and financial tools, leadership and growth organization, investment in targeting women's access to productive and financial resources. Because, for example, there is evidence that women's increasing women's participation in productive decisions, making in productive decision making leads to crop diversification, and this implies a more resilient agricultural livelihoods. But we also need to address policies that change norms and governance, such as gender-based violence, require collaterals, and developing tools with a gender approach. And this means, for example, considering lack of access to back a credit line, the types of training offers, and the crop, for example, the crop interest, and the modality of these trainings. Are these trainings are going to be implemented at an individual level or at a group level? Are these trainings going to be their, their attendants are gonna be mixed gender or we're gonna just focus on women. And even then something that is not usually understood is at what time the training happens. You know, women have, because of the lifestyle, they have different type of time availability than men might. So if we go now into the sources of funding and um, we can consider, um, overarching a public funding system. And this is very broad, but public funding is what sets the stage and the priorities of the programs that will be implemented at an individual level. So it's important to make sure that the processes are transparent, that design is appropriate and is fitted to the considerations that we explained earlier. However, there are not enough programs that have a gender focus. We're missing gender disaggregated statistics for many of these programs, as well as the details that regarding the design, the follow-up, and the evaluation of the programs. These programs are gonna be focused on education, agricultural research and development, extension, access to resources for women, but also these programs have to include social safety nets. Women's empowerment is hindered by lack of access to proper nutrition programs, health programs, and also child and dependent care. 
some of the pro, uh, of the institutions who are behind the public funding are what we will find on international development agencies and governments. If we go towards more private funding, what we understand as private funding, again, very loose definitions here, but basically through the time we have seen the banking system as the focus behind financial inclusion of women. But as we have shown, the picture is much more complicated than that. Financing women is broader since it includes financing programs that support women and capital markets that might support or not women-led operations. Overall, we need a better disaggregated data, but also we need to understand behind the banking system, what are the norms and the regulations? How are the regulations behind the banking system reflecting social norms that hinder women's empowerment? For example, does it focus on individual credit lines or considers also saving groups and instru as, or instruments as for collectives? Another novel way of leveraging funds led to women's led organizations are coming through the capital markets with two very defined instruments, which are thematic impact investment funds, which usually are levied through the private sector and gender bonds, which are behind, um, tend to be international organizations tend to be behind them. And we have seen some examples of gender bonds already applied in Asia and Latin America. Finally, I want to leave you with a conclusion. Financing food systems transformations with a gender focus has with a gender focus has great potential to both boost women's empowerment, but also build resilient systems and strengthen food security. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to your comments. Thank you so much, um, uh, Flo, for that uh, nice presentation. Indeed, we need to pay attention to uh, women's issues. And so we move on to our final um, presentation. And we are back at uh, Dr. Eugenio Diaz again. Um, I will remind you that he is an extensive uh, finance flow expert. Um, so over to you now for um, the issues on drawing on special rights. Okay, so the, the starting point is the, the idea that there is a large amount of liquidity in, in, in global, the global economy and the interest rates are very, very low. That's the chart with the interest rate of the 10-year treasury bond. And the, the red line, it's the sort of the average for the last 100 years, which is about 5%, a little bit over 5%. So now it's very low, L large liquidity, very low interest rates. So the question is how we can use development money to mobilize the private sector money in the banking system and capital markets to uh, support public budgets and also the operators in, in value chains. So that's the general idea. In particular, we've been working um, at, at DIFPRI, a at, at part of the financial labor group uh, I'm, that of the UN Food Systems Summit that I'm part of, uh, the, the suggestion of using more strategically the special drawing rights. This is a sort of money created by the, um, by the IMF. Uh, it, it's been an allocation for $650 billion added to the 200 billion that were uh, allocated several years on, uh, before that. Uh, but because it's, it's done in proportion of the quota of the IMF, um, the large per percentage goes to a small number of advanced countries that they now have about, considering the new allocation is $375 billion, 
plus the all allocation that they still hold, it's above $500 billion. And while the, the emerging, the number of 150 countries that are emerging and developing, they have far, far less uh, as a whole, but also individually because there are um, more. In the case of Ethiopia, the allocation for this uh, uh, SDR, uh, the new SDR is only $300 million, million, not billion. <laughs> Uh, and the, the, what they, the Ethiopia has from the previous allocation is less than $9 million. So, but the, these uh, advanced countries, they may not need that much free money. So the managing director of the, of the IMS suggested three ways of using the needed uh, SDRs. One is to use it for a poverty reduction and, and growth trust fund that is already at the IMF to, to lend to uh, low-income countries. Then the possible creation of a new resilience and sustainability trust, uh, also for uh, low and developing countries with um, structural uh, problems, uh, including climate change challenges. And the other is to give them the SDRs to um, multilateral banks and then can own lend to developing countries. So we are suggesting a third, a fourth option, if you want, which is the creation of guaranteed trust funds for pandemic recovery bonds or other thematic bonds like zero hunger bonds, zero hunger green bonds, uh, that can be uh, uh, organized just by allocating a small uh, portion of the SDRs that unneeded SDRs that developed countries are receiving. And then it can be used to guarantee a special type of bond that we, uh, that we call the pandemic recovery bond, which is a perpetual bond or a very long dated bond with floating uh, uh, interest rates that perhaps may, may be tied to the US 10 uh, year bond. Um, even with a small markup, perhaps with, with a cap uh, at 5%, because that's sort of the long, the 100 year average of, of this uh, type of uh, bonds. Uh, if the uh, guarantee fund, the fund uh, hold three to five years of interest payment in the guarantee fund, and it's rolling every year forward, then you can multiply the, the, the number of the value of bonds that you can be guaranteeing. Uh, let's say if you use $50 billion, which is less than 10% of the, what the developed advanced countries are receiving, you can guarantee at least $250 billion in these pandemic recovery bonds, which is more than uh, close to the same in, uh, uh, increases it's, it's much the same amount that the SDRs that the developing countries are receiving right now. So they are doubling the amount of financing with this uh, approach. And countries to be eligible, they have to have a pandemic recovery bond with bond a plan with, um, with they can do that with multilateral banks. And part of the issues can be used to substitute some of the short term and, and more expensive debt that they are they incurred in the pandemic. And the quota may, what, what uh, guarantees can be receiving each country may be based on poverty, the impact of COVID and the depth of the recession. Uh, in general, this idea would offer an additional uh, uh, instrument with an adequate combination of risk and return to mobilize the liquidity that I was mentioning at the beginning and also help the, the country to move faster uh, to end the, the, the COVID pandemic. Um, this is part of the proposals in the UNFSS uh, financial imperatives. And if you are interested in more information, there are these two uh, papers. 
Thank you, Namukolo. What you're telling us, there are some creative ways in which we can use public money to draw in uh, private investment into some of these development uh, processes. And I'm sure there's no shortage of countries out there that would like Dr. Newman to go and try it out <laughs> on them. And so let's start uh, with the questions. Um, there's quite a number of questions actually that have been received and I will field as many of them as I can. So I'm going to ask you um, panelists if you can be brief in your answers so that we can answer as many of them um, as possible. The first question I would like to, uh, I'm directing to Dr. Newman and, and specifically the speaker is addressing the question to you. The question is uh, from somebody called Jay Howard from CSIS. The question is, what is the projected return to investors on the range of returns for the blended finance fund described that you had described? So our goal is to, the main tranche of the vehicle uh, should be market-related returns because this would then mobilize the, the capital that is needed. Saying that uh, the vehicle itself has a range, um, including first last tranche, uh, main tranche, and then also a mezzanine, which is a more high-risky uh, element. However, the, the large proportion, which is the main tranche, should be similar to any other debt investment that invests into emerging markets. So. I don't, and although I'm not going to mention the number, but uh, for that tranche, it'll be market-related uh, returns. Thank you very much. And then the next question is from Lauren Porter, and I'm going to direct this one to uh, Dr. Eugene. The question is, where would panelists suggest that small NGOs with successful regional programs seek funding from most uh, are of, uh, most of them are too small to seek USAID or government support. So where, where could they look for uh, financing? Over to you, Dr. Eugene. Uh, that, yeah, that's the problem of aggregation, it not only for NGOs is in general, the, uh, how you can put a lot of small operations in a way that can be financed. Uh, I think that the, 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 the initial way is, is to work with, um, with other charities and, and NGOs try to aggregate in a, in a bigger program and then uh, try to put together a, a working with the government, or local, local authorities, uh, get some alliances. So you can, you can have a, a bigger um, size if you want, then uh, can be uh, uh, presented as, as something that has lower transaction cost if you want, because it's a bigger operation. But mostly it has to be basically starting these alliances and working with uh, local authorities and other organizations try to put together a, a larger program and in, in that way you can uh, access um, bigger pools of, of funding. It's, uh, not, it's not only a problem for, as I said, for NGOs, for SMEs, for small farmers, and that's why they, we needed sort of um, interventions that Richard was mentioning and uh, at CGIR we are working on, which is uh, putting together different uh, investments in a way that then can be presented to potential uh, uh, financiers, be those multilateral banks, 
perhaps private sector investors and so on. But the, the main point is how you aggregate these, uh, these interventions in a way that can be uh, financed at, at scale. So it sounds like build, they need to build strength in their numbers, essentially, is what you are advising. Um, I would like to put the next question to Dr. Sisse. Uh, so Dr. Sisse, you remember I threw a question at you before we, uh, before we got to the Q&A. I want you to address that question of um, how would you co how did you coordinate the flows of money um, that came into the Sakota Declaration? But in addition to that, I want you to answer the second question, which is from an anonymous person. And this one is on the agricultural interventions as you explained them, that 90% stunting reduction came from agriculture but you indicate 75% of household receives at least one agriculture interventions. The question being asked to you is, could you please expand on how that explains the results through complementary feeding? Over to you, Dr. Sise. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Namukolo. Uh, regarding the first question, in terms of coordinating the the various uh, uh, partners in terms of the, the fund flow. Uh, we have what we call it the Warada-based costed plan, which is one of the innovations. And that Warada-based costed plan uh, tries to understand what kind of interventions are prioritized at Warada level, and also how much investment is needed for various multi-sectoral interventions. And also how does the funding is contributed from the government, from the development partners as well as also from the community uh, at various levels. So the Wereda uh, costed plan had made the innovation phase investment plan. So we have uh, a four years an innovation phase investment plan where we mapped out the contribution of the uh, government, the contribution of the community as well as also the contribution of development partners. So in this regard, uh, the contribution of the development partners comes through different channels. One is directly investing to the Sakota Declaration priorities or uh, tested innovations. For instance, the investment for Big Win is directly invested to the program delivery unit. The Nutrition International investment goes to the program delivery unit as well as also to the Costed Warada based plan, the investment from UNICEF and GATES goes to uh, directly to the uh, to the data revolution uh, testing, UNIS and also YASMI testing, and also uh, and so on. But other partners may not be directly financing the innovations, but they find technical assistance or sponsoring the activities that are prioritized during the innovation phase. Uh, and also some other uh, uh, partners also support the various activities in terms of coordination, uh, in terms of studies, and also in terms of implementation of various innovative approaches. But what we did was we also do the resource tracking and the partnership management. So how was the investment goes to the planned priorities based on the investment case? So uh, I think to, 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 to conclude on these questions, 
we may not be directly uh, asking the partners to finance those who are interested to finance through the PDU, they finance the PDU uh, innovations. Others sponsor the various innovations and also others directly implement in the community. But at the end of the day, we also had a tool which is called resource tracking and partnership management. We know how uh, to, to track the, the various uh, interventions and also the investment of the, the various partners. Through that, we measure the contribution of uh, the, the, the different stakeholders. The second part of the question is the second question is on the agricultural intervention. So when you say the agricultural interventions through the complementary feeding is the interventions that we implemented to improve the diet diversity. When we do the baseline survey, the minimum diet diversity uh, score for children under two was almost 1% and for pregnant lactating women, it was 10%, which means that it is very, very low. So the agricultural interventions that are prioritized are the, the uh, kitchen gardening uh, at a household level, uh, small ruminants like poultry production, the goat milk promotion, promotion of nutrient-dense crops, uh, as well as also promotion of small-scale irrigations uh, and also the post-harvest loss uh, reduction interventions. So all these interventions are implemented at household level that directly contributed to uh, provide access to nutrient-dense foods uh, at household level, which also improved the, uh, the complementary feeding practice coupled by with another innovation, which we call it the first 1,000 days uh, public movement for social and behavior change in the uh, communication. So uh, this intervention had a very big, a wide range of uh, uh, activities, but considering the time, this is how uh, we have achieved. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sisse. So it, it really sounds like the priorities have been set by the government through the Sokota Declaration and then the different partners then find entry points within those uh, within the program where they could actually do their bit. Um, perhaps that would be a useful example uh, in other settings as well. I like the idea of the, the, the way in which you managed to deal with uh, stunting, because for a long time, we've actually been told, forget dealing with stunting from agriculture, do other things, worry about the diet. So it's really nice to actually see this kind of, 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 of impact. But of course, it's very clear that it was a mega multi-sectoral approach, which is also uh, kind of encouraging because of, if we look at how the Sun Movement is trying to pull together multi-sectoral action for nutrition, uh, what you've done definitely points to that. Um, the next question I would like to uh, filled through to uh, Floor. Floor, this is a question from Orinda Charles Uma in Kenya. And the question is, how do you address land issue and the gender culture and, and, and gender culture and ownership? So these, this issue about land and gender, what is your advice there? Over to you. So going back to the framework that we were thinking about um, on a gender food system, that is exactly the issue where you have gender norms and 
governance conflicting with access to resources. Um, women tend to be through the world, this has seen in different regions all over the world, women tend to have ownership of land more through their either through their partners or through their families or through communities and collected than actually having titling on their own. So if we are going to be using land as a collateral for them in order to access as a credit lines, in order to access financing, then we have to figure out how we're going to take into account this non-traditional, if we want to, but actually there are the traditional ways, right? The non-traditionals at the finance level, if you want to, um, ways of ownership of assets. And that is something that a lot of programs we're still trying to pilot um, through qualitative research about how we define these ownership issues, how we help women um, gain ownership, but also not only because you have two things, right? We You have the ownership in real terms, they actually work the land, they actually use the land, but they don't have the paper, or you have the other way, you have facilitated them getting paper, but they're not able to access the resource. So how we're still trying to realize that, and that is exactly a very, very important point, and it's at the crux of a lot of these issues with women's access of financing. Yeah, thank you very much, Flo. And indeed, I think the point you raise actually goes beyond women even, because in some places, because of challenges of people not having title for land and stuff like that, that has also gotten in the way uh, of being able to get um, adequate financing. Um, the next question I would like to pass on to Actually, Richard, even though the question is being directed at, at IFPRI, it, it speaks to climate smart agriculture, so I will pass it on to you. The question is from Saidi Mkomwa uh, from the African Conservation Tillage Network. And he, he or she, probably here, I don't know, besides CSA to make agriculture attractive to financing, what are your perceptions for mechanization deemed essential in Africa to increase productivity? That's a really good question. So I think there are a couple. Uh, one firstly is we need to look more in the digital infrastructure, um, especially now if we want to reach uh, smaller farmers. We need to look at how the, what solutions we can apply that can really reach scale in terms of um, access to information services like climate information services, for example. These can be brought through digital channels. Um, so that would be one really important uh, component. Um, secondly, uh, we also need to support that early stage aggregation, uh, incubation, um, um, agri SME startup environment. Uh, there are a lot of great business uh, organizations already doing that, especially in Africa. Um, but they do still need um, uh, public funding to really, as these are very early innovative uh, businesses, we need to support those, that ecosystem uh, more strongly. Um, I hope that that answers the question. If other panelists want to jump in on top of that, they're welcome to. Um, Dr. Eugenia, might you perhaps have something you could add there? This mechanization is only one, it's an it's important aspect of the technologies uh, for agricultural uh, intensification, sustainable intensification, but 
is not the only the, the only one. I think it it it, it depends on the type of uh, farmers, uh, uh, and of course you need to um, adjust the type of um, uh, mechanization to the size of the different farmers, the possibility of them working together. There are different, uh, there is a combination of institutional innovations. How can you work together with different farmers with the same sort of equipment? Um, and at the same time, how you design equipment that is adequate for small farmers, uh, and then how you can help finance uh, this, um, the use of, of this uh, uh, instrument by, by small farmers. So, there are different components. I would say not only look at the mechanization, but look at the whole uh, 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 the, the whole set of technologies that we need to apply, um, uh, and 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 then how how you can uh, design those technologies at the level of the type of farmers that you are working with, and 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 from that you can uh, get the fin the financing uh, required. Thank you very much, Dr. Eugenie. Um, a follow-up question to that, uh, back to you again, Dr. Richard, is from an anonymous, um, and, and it says, given the plethora of climate funds, is it a good idea to add to this spaghetti ball with another fund or better integrate the existing ones? Over to you. Great. Um... Yeah, so I think firstly, if you look at um, the food systems can deliver about 38% of uh, emissions reductions by 2050. So I think climate is really important components uh, within food systems, but you raise an important point. And the point is that at this stage where we are with these kind of products, there's no standardization. So it is very difficult for investors to come onto these um, products um, without any track record or as in the case of any other sector so that that is really the bigger challenge how do we showcase these are the, the best case um, products out there here's like here's the the windows that you can come in and finance them uh, simplify that whole structure the operationalization of that that would really support in terms of mobilizing a lot of capital so I, I think you raise an important point that we need to really look at standardizing and building a track record of, of these kind of solutions. So we don't have so many bespoke um, interventions at play. Um, yeah. I guess given um, the kind of, I mean, we, we're really facing a situation at the moment where the entire planet is trying to uh, do something. Uh, the UN Food Systems Summit has been unprecedented in bringing about that level of activity, wanting to do something over time. And so I imagine there will be need to coalesce some financing ideas to, to create bigger pots of money and perhaps um, gain economies of scale that way. Um, the next question I would uh, is from an anonymous as well, and, and I'm passing it on to uh, Dr. Sise because it has to do with Eunice. Um, is there any proven data platform which can be utilized to monitor interventions, particularly for multi-sectoral approaches, other than the pilot like units, which you used. Over to you, Dr. Sise. 
Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Namukolo. Uh, of course, before we were using uh, a multi-sectoral uh, scorecard, which is Excel-based, uh, and uh, uh, that has uh, a huge limitation in terms of the quality and the timeliness. Uh, but UNIS is now embedded into the DHIS2, uh, and uh, we hope that the pilot, the successful pilot we did in the Sakota Declaration with us, and also uh, the trial we also did in the additional Waradas through uh, UNICEF support in, in CINAS will uh, give us uh, a real-time data uh, and also a quality data when uh, we take it at scale. But before we were using uh, an Excel-based uh, multi-sectoral uh, platform, which is sent manually, and also it is uh, the lot of a time issue, the quality issue, uh, but now UNICE is embedded into uh, a data where the multi-sectors will access it to report their performance and we'll be tracking also using UNICE the performance scorecard. Thank you. And then one more question to you again, Dr. Sise from another anonymous is, were there lessons on innovation beyond the 40 waradas from other nutrition actors in the nation in phase one of your program? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think this is also an important question. You know, when uh, we do the innovation phase in the 40 waradas, uh, we have tested various innovations and also partners have also tested various approaches. So there are uh, innovative approach within even the 40 waradas and also uh, elsewhere uh, in the country. So what we did uh, when we do the, the expansion phase uh, roadmap development is uh, we consulted with the R4D, this is a result for development, uh, through uh, Nutrition International uh, Technical Assistance, uh, uh, NITAN, to generate an evidence base, both uh, in-country experiences and innovations, in Sakota Declaration Waradas, elsewhere in the country, as well as globally, and inform the design of the expansion phase roadmap. So that evidence uh, synthesis has informed us a lot of learning already exists within Ethiopia, as well as also elsewhere in the world, so that we can have a better uh, expansion phase roadmap to inform and also accelerate the stunting reduction when we implement the expansion phase. Uh, so yes, there are lessons elsewhere in Ethiopia, but also we have also generated learning uh, from other parts of the world to inform the expansion phase. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, a question from um, Getu in Ethiopia that really speaks to um, just the unprecedented nature of the UN Food Systems Summit. I'm sure that there's going to be, we are praying, and I'm one of the people who's praying for uh, a floodgate opening of different um, international players committing uh, financial resources. And so the question from Gatu in Ethiopia is, how can we evaluate the international community commitment to fill the financial gap for world food systems? Um, Dr. Eugene, can I throw this to your wisdom over the years? Um. Yes, <laughs> well, the, it basically is transparency, no? So if someone is, is saying, I'm going to increase the amount of money to do this, uh, then you, you need to have um, a, a way of tracking 
those commitments, making sure that that's not related, that this basically shifting money from one pocket to another. And in fact, you are not increasing the, 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 the amount of resources. It's basically um, a, a, a topic of transparency uh, and statistics. And it's very much related to um, the article that, that you wrote, Nambukolo. How, how do we do the follow-up uh, to the UNFSS? What are the, the system for tracking commitments, uh, financing, uh, and so on? So probably you are in a better position to, to discuss uh, this point. I just wanted to make a, a very short comment on the question of, of on funds. I think there is a we need to separate two types of funds. One are the public funds uh, related to uh, green investments, and it's true there is a spaghetti ball of funds and confusion, and there's several suggestions about how to um, streamline these funds. But then we have the private sector funds that Richard was referring to. And I would like to have a spaghetti bowl of these funds. I would like to have very many of these funds because this is money from private sectors, uh, investors doing specific things in, in different countries. So the idea is how you multiply the level of these type of interventions uh, in different countries with different technologies, different uh, uh, products, uh, agricultural products, uh, different type of climate change approaches. So we learn uh, how, what are the, the things that are, that, that finally, that are working uh, and, and we multiply them. So I'm, I'm concerned about the spaghetti ball on the public sector funds. I'm not at all concerned about having a lot of different approaches on the investment, the private sector investment funds, the type of impact investors that uh, Richard was referring to and CGI is supporting. Thank you very much. Um, the last question I will field is one uh, that I'm going to direct to Dr. Richard. Um, and Dr. Richard, the question is, have you already operationalized this fund? I presume it speaks to the, your presentation in terms of the funding mechanisms you talked about. So have you already operationalized this fund? What other funds are out there and how do you do yours differ? Almost sounds like you've got funding. While you're thinking about that, I would like you to finish off uh, answering that question with the question that I had posed to you earlier. And that is the issue of if any one of the country teams that are listening to you today I would like to get in touch, perhaps to explore you trying out some of these ideas within the transformation pathways they have developed. How do they reach out? Who do they reach out to? Uh, could you provide some advice? Over to you, Dr. Richard. Excellent. So on the first question on operationalization, um, so we're on the final phases for launch, so it's not yet operational. Um, it will be uh, hopefully happening soon, fingers crossed, um, but looking very promising. We have very good interest from investors, both on the public side and the private side. Um, in terms of other out there, um, there are a couple, yes. For example, Agri3 Fund, which is uh, supported by the, the Dutch government, as well as Rabobank, the big um, financial institution um, in the Netherlands. Um, there's also a couple, for example, uh, tropical landscape, uh, finance facility. The difference really is that we'll be one of the first that really look, is looking at the food systems transformation. Um, 
So, and then integrating the science and research into that process. A lot of funds today to actually focus more on land use. And as I mentioned earlier, land use can only probably bring about 12% of that GHG emission reduction. Whereas if you actually look elsewhere, food loss waste, healthy diets, you can really get up to that, uh, that 30%. Um, so that is that's that would be the differentiator there. Um, and then the last one, how to reach out? Um, please do, and I would I would definitely I can uh, pop my email in into the chat. Also on um, our research center, climate change, agriculture, food security, CCAFs. A lot of the material on sustainable finance can be found there, and that would be a good avenue for 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 me to connect with with anyone. Uh, over to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, as I get to try and uh, and conclude uh, in terms of what uh, seems to have emerged from our discussions, uh, I want to touch on a question that came in late uh, from uh, Orinda Charles Um from Kenya who really questions the whole thing about uh, food systems transformation. Is it easy to say food systems need to be transformed, uh, but hard to say why or transformed to what? Um, actually, <laughs> it is very clear in terms of the fact that our food systems need to transform to what? To food systems that are uh, more compatible with sustaining the, the, climate, the, the climate, the environment, sustainable in terms of ensuring that we can sustain food security and nutrition over the long, long term without destroying our environment or destroying our planet upon which we depend. So I think the reasons for transforming are really very clear. And, and what we need to transform to is also very clear. The mechanisms of how to get there are some of the issues that we've now been discussing. And I think the whole subject of the entire UN Food Systems Summit process. So what I would advise is that you have a look at the wealth of documents that have now been developed and that are available on that website to, to find uh, perhaps answers to some of the questions that you've got. But really, this has been a very uh, a rich uh, discussion. And, and some of the issues that have emerged is the fact that, um, yes, there are efforts already countries have developed food systems transformation pathways and ethiopia was being used as an example to put a spotlight on what countries have been trying to do but also that to actually realize the impacts of the plans that countries have been putting in place we're going to need financing uh, mechanism. And Dr. Eugene reminded me of the paper on uh, all hat and no cattle, which has been uh, really, it's really an editorial in global food security. And the idea is we want to make sure that these plans that countries have put in place, the impacts that they could bring forth could be realized. And that one of the areas that might be a drawback 
would be if not enough finance resourcing is put forward to actually be able to operationalize those plans to the impacts we are looking for. Therefore, the wealth of information that the speakers have shared about the different potential uh, avenues of mobilizing resources for food systems transformation is very valuable. And indeed, there are some examples that have been presented uh, that could be looked into. And of course, then we've got uh, the issue of the fact that um, there are institutions like IFPRI and the International Water Management Institute, uh, represented here by Richard, that they have really been trying out things and they are inviting you to reach out and see what they have been doing because sometimes positioning some of these ideas within these transformation pathways might be transformative in of itself um, and so indeed where do we go from now the ideas that have emerged and the discussions, we'll try and pull them together and we will share them with the finance lever, which is one of the levers within the UN Food Systems Summit to really re-emphasize the issue of being able to create these financing mechanisms, but also provide enough information so that countries actually know who to reach out to and how to be able to access any financing uh, that could be able to be reached. And so saying that, I would like to say uh, thank you very much to the uh, speakers for a very uh, rich uh, discussion, uh, really rich presentations as well. I also want to say thank you to everybody online out there that has been participating. I can see there are still more questions coming, but unfortunately we have reached the end uh, of, our, of, our, of our event. And so first I want to say thank you very much to our panel speakers, um, Dr. Eugene um, Diaz Bonilla, thank you. Uh, Dr. Richard Newman, uh, thank you. Um, Dr. Flo, uh, thank you very much. And Dr. Sise for bringing on board a country perspective to grind us into uh, the practical on the ground. Uh, thank you uh, to you as well. And, and final, but certainly not least, I wanna thank all the people behind the scene, uh, Charlotte, uh, Katala, Thank you very much for making this possible and for making the event run as smoothly as it has. I wanna leave you by uh, making an announcement, which is um, one on, I think another uh, webinar that is going to take place and an invitation to join IFPRI again next Thursday on September 30th at 9 a.m. Eastern, that is Washington time, for the seminar. And the seminar is going to be on developing resilience to climate change and achieving food security in West Africa. This is gonna be a follow-up action from the UN Food Systems Summit. And on that, I would like to say 
Thank you again to all the speakers. Thank you to all of you who have joined us online. And thank you very much. Goodbye to all.